Well, we are in the book of Jeremiah, if you want to turn to that book. There are outlines available for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you in this hour again, uh, that we might be able to in, uh, look into your word, that you might open it up in such a way that will be beneficial not only for our minds, but for our hearts and our feet and hands as well, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had someone call me recently about a certain project, and he said, I have bad news, and I have bad news. Jeremiah is filled with a lot of bad news, if you've read the book, but like all the Old Testament and the prophets in particular, there's bad news laced with good news. It's a book that's relevant for any society that's unraveling socially and religiously. Francis Schaeffer wrote in the late 60s, Jeremiah provides us with an extended study of an era like our own, where men have turned away from God and society has become post-Christian. It's a book filled with courtroom drama. It's a relentless prosecuting attorney driving home his case for a bunch of covenant breakers, and yet it has a ray of hope for a better day. Some helpful things to guide you as you read the book. It's the longest book in the Bible if we count by the number of Hebrew words, almost a thousand words longer than Genesis. It's a collection of prophecies and oracles arranged thematically and for most of the part, not chronologically. Jeremiah preached and a scribe named Baruch, a student of Jeremiah, wrote them down and arranged them in a book. And for more context, it's really helpful if you were to read 2 Kings chapters 22 through 25 and 2 Chronicles chapters 34 through 36. Those two books and those chapters in particular fill in a lot of blanks. I put in your outline a simple structure. It's called a chiasm uh, for a very simple way of looking at the book. The introduction introduces Jeremiah's call and then you have condemnation on one side and condemnation on the other side. In the middle is consolation, the new covenant, And then at the end, you have the appendix that summarizes Jerusalem's fall. Just for a big picture, anyway, of the book. The theme or the big idea I have is judgment for breaking the covenant with a hopeful future promise attached. And we can see the theme summed up in three points. God's people have grievously sinned. God's people will be seriously judged. And God will be faithful to his redemptive covenantal promises. So we look first of all at the biographical context, and that's in the first chapter. Jeremiah was a son of a preacher or a priest. The words of Jeremiah, verse 1, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. And he had a divine call upon him to preach the word, verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations." And so you can see that God had his hand on Jeremiah before he was ever ever formed in the womb. He had a purpose for Jeremiah long before he was born. Jeremiah was a very young man when he received this call, and he did not really sign up for it, but he was drafted by God, and he didn't receive it well. Verse 6 notes that he was reluctant to submit to the call using the famous excuse by Moses. Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But when God calls, there are no refusals. Verse 7, do not say I'm only a youth, 
For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. But God also assures him that he will have divine support. Verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. One of my former professors years ago used to say, God's callings are God's enablings. And Jeremiah is going to find that out. He was not called to give his opinions, but you notice verse 4 and verse 8. Now the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 8, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so Jeremiah's ministry prevailed for over 40 years under the reign of five kings from Josiah to Zedekiah. He even preached to the discouraged Christians or captives, I should say, for some years after they were carried away to Babylon. Jeremiah is known as a very fiery and bold prophet, but he's also known as a sensitive man, a weeping prophet. He was often broken over the impending doom uh, that would come over his beloved land. After the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people, he wrote the book of Lamentations. And this reminds us, obviously, of another bold, compassionate, weeping prophet who stood over Jerusalem and cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jeremiah was not allowed to marry and have a family due to his calling in the distressing times. And like many prophets of judgment, he was not very popular. He paid dearly for his ministry as almost everyone was against him and treated him very harshly. At one point, the priests and the religious leaders gathered together to have him assassinated. Then they put him in stock so the townspeople could mock him publicly He underwent verbal harassment by people and false prophets. He suffered physical abuses, imprisonments. One occasion, he was lowered by ropes into a muddy cistern, which were used for solitary confinement. He was accused of treason and eventually carried off to Egypt, where we have no record of his death, but believe his life ended there in exile, away from his beloved Jerusalem. At one point, Jeremiah wanted to quit, even questioning God's integrity as he suffered from a preacher's Monday morning woes, as we call them. In Jeremiah, uh, at one point, I don't have the text here, Oh Lord, you have deceived me, he said. I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me, for whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. But as most preachers, most of the time, they get over it on Tuesday morning, and he realized he couldn't quit. This is Jeremiah 20, actually. He said, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So the word of God was so deep in his belly that even when he became so discouraged, he was upset at God. He wanted to quit. It was the word of God that was the burning fire that caused him to say, I must press Well, that's a little bit of the biographical context there. Let's look second of all at the historical context. The northern kingdom, ten tribes have long since been taken by the Assyrians into captivity. They've been scattered all over 
blended in with uh, the Gentile nations. They eventually became, the, some of them, the Samaritans. But now, approximately 125 years later, Jeremiah announces that the hammer is ready to drop on the remaining southern two tribes, referred to as Judah in the book of Jeremiah. Israel is sandwiched between Egypt and Babylon, which were always a major threat, their greatest fear that these foreign nations would invade them and take them over. The Assyrian power has now begun to fade, and the Babylonians have ascended as the major world power, having overthrown the Assyrians. And Jeremiah has bad news. Nebuchadnezzar is the king in Babylon, and you're going to be carried away into captivity. Your doom is sure, he says. The people had been trusting in the temple to save them, but Jeremiah has to warn them. Jeremiah 7, 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And how typical it is for people to think that the externals of their religion will suffice in keeping them in the good graces of God. And so it begins with a good note. Josiah is the king in his 13th year, king of Judah. He's a good king. He brings reforms. If you were to see 2 Chronicles 34, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And so as they were under these reforms, they were repairing the temple and the book of the law was discovered. And this was a huge turning point for Josiah. We read, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Second Kings 22 tells us he commanded the priests and others to go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So he was shaken and he wanted to bring the people back to the word of God and to reform the nation. And so we begin, as you notice, reform. First of all, Josiah begins serious reforms, calling the people to repentance and tearing down the high places. He attempted to get the people back to the ancient or the old paths discovered in the book of the law. And it's believed that chapters 4, 5, and 6 were written during this period of uh, Jeremiah's uh, preaching. And he condemned their their, their formalism. There were outward reforms to the law, but inwardly no change had taken place. And Josiah was tearing down the high places, places, but the people were told, Jeremiah uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. They were sowing the newly discovered religion among the thorns of idolatry, meaning their hearts were not changed. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And there were constant calls to repentance, but their hearts remained unchanged. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient past where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Stubbornness, rebellion, even during a reform. 
And then providentially, during Josiah's reforms, he met with a tragic death, and every vestige of reformation died with him. Each successive king after Josiah continued the downward spiral of idolatry and disobedience, debauchery, the prophecies intensified by Jeremiah, and judgment was imminent. And so we see from reform to rebellion. And this is fascinating. The ungodliness was across the board. It was prophet, it was priests, it was kings, and it was the people. Over and over again, there's a denunciation of the shepherds of Israel. and Their failure, their ungodliness, to, and, and failure to shepherd the people. And some people think that the word shepherd here means all of the leaders, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Some believe it's only the priests. Surely, as you read the book, you know that all of those groups of people were debauched. They were were spreading ungodliness and lies and not looking after the people. It's probably a reference to all three, prophet, priest, and king. Jeremiah is clear with warnings and judgments against all three. Chapters 22 and 23 have plenty of prophecies against the kings of Judah. And then chapter 23 begins with the words after the kings are denounced, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds." But this also includes not only the ungodly prophets and the ungodly priests, and there's so much more you could read about the priests. It's amazing, the people that were to be leading them in godliness and holiness, they were just utterly debauched in so many ways. But of the, it says in Jeremiah 23, 11, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. And again in chapter 14, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. Lying prophets, lying preachers. And whatever Jeremiah would say, the prophets would contradict him. And the people preferred the false prophets to the word of the Lord. They they would mock him and scorn him and on occasion tormented him. Threw him in a cistern, as I said, beat him, harassed him mercilessly and The amazing thing is the people preferred to hear the false prophets. This was the era of fake news, Jeremiah 6.14. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It would be like the sirens wailing and warning and Omaha of an impending tornado that was about to hit and the newscasters on every channel were saying, don't worry about it, it's really okay, nothing's going to happen, you're safe. The ungodly kings were also in Jeremiah's bullseye. The prophets, the priests, and the kings, they had enjoyed a favorable time under King Josiah at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, but when the book of the law was discovered and there was a period of revival, that was one thing, but it didn't last long. Josiah's son reigned after him, and all the successive kings were wicked and allowed wickedness to prevail. And due to the ungodliness of the leaders, the sin and rebellion was so noticeable in in all of the people of Judah, except for a remnant. 
Ultimately, as you read the book, there was plenty of guilt to go around for the prophets, the priests, and the kings, as well as many of the inhabitants of Judah, save, as I say, for that small remnant. And the indictment of Jeremiah against the prophet, priest, and king was scathing. But over and over again, there's also a case against the people for breaking the covenant. Jeremiah 2, 26 and 27, For they, in other words, the people of Judah, have turned their back to me and not their face. Jeremiah 6.15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Again, Jeremiah 5, but they also loved false teaching. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But... What will you do when the end comes? And then most grievous of all, Jeremiah 3.21, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. This is a tragic time in Israel's history, and God's judgment is going to fall upon his people, on the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and all of the people. It's going to be very, very severe. In Jeremiah 8, 1 and 2, and all these texts are in your outline if you want to. We just don't have time to look them all up. But I'm quoting from Jeremiah 8, verses 1 and 2. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah. Just listen how serious this was. The bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried. The bones of the prophets and the priests and the kings and the inhabitants are going to be dug up out of their tombs and burned up and scattered about. That's how serious this rebellion was. And so we look third of all at retribution. The hammer is going to fall. The fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. And if you've studied the history of Israel during this time, they were carried away out of Israel, uh, Judah into Babylon in what we call three deportations. They were not all carried off at once. The first was in 605 B.C. Daniel, the prophet, is carried away in the first wave. The second wave is 597. Ezekiel, at that point, is taken captive and carried with people into Babylon. And the third wave was 586 Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the walls and the gates are destroyed by fire, and the last group, except for a small remnant, are carried off to Babylon. And that period, 586 B.C., would mark the end of the first temple period and the end of the monarchy in Judah. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, was the last king when Judah was taken captive and he suffered an awful fate. Listen to Jeremiah 52, 8 through 11. This is the, the final appendix to the book. 
But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. This was an unhappy ending for a wicked king, prophets and priests, and a wicked people. The remaining people that were in Jerusalem were judged there. Tragic scene, if you read it, death, cruelty, hunger... Jeremiah continued to actually encourage the captives who were in Babylon. They were so discouraged at times there, even though God promised them, just go there, live, marry, live your life, do your thing. I will bring you back after 70 years. But there were times, as we read in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4, I'm reading from the New English Translation. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? You can just sense the pathos, the the deep sorrow in their hearts they've been extracted from the place of blessing they have no temple no place to gather and sacrifice they are weary people in a weary land and so we move from reform rebellion retribution and finally to restoration after 70 years the people of God returned to Jerusalem fascinating history. Nehemiah and Ezra uh, tells you all about this, but the king's heart, as we learn in the Proverbs, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God uses a foreign Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon to judge his people, but when God is done using Babylon as an instrument to carry out his divine purposes, ironically, it is Babylon he turns against to bring restoration to his people. If you notice that chiasm in your outline, you have the condemnation. It's by Babylon as an instrument to carry away the people. And then at the other side of that condemnation, there's condemnation where God is using Babylon as a a means of his own judgment to bring the people back. God is sovereign over all of the nations, and in the scathing denunciations of Babylon, he makes a sweeping um, denunciation of many of the nations around that area. And so in 539 B.C., the fall of Babylon by the Medes or the Persians under Cyrus... Jeremiah 51.1, thus says the Lord, behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Jeremiah 51.11, the Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. How Babylon has taken the praise of the whole earth seized. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. 
And so the fall of Babylon was a monumental, earth-shaking event. Jeremiah 50:46. At the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble, and her cries shall be heard among the nations. And with the Babylonians overthrown, this was the beginning of the Persian period and the restoration of the people of God in their homeland. And then the decree of Cyrus allowing the Jews to return That brings us to our second major point, the Christological context. And surely you've been listening to things in this narrative so far that have given you hints of a better day. Jeremiah has on occasion spoken of the depravity of man and the need for a circumcised heart. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 30, verses 20 and thir- uh, 12, 30, verses 12 and 13, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound. A hurt that's incurable, no medicine for your wound. The book of Jeremiah, like all the Old Testament, was preparing us for Messiah who would bring us an unbreakable covenant that would give us new hearts that would never, never turn again away from him. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 tell us how there were times when the prophets spoke, but there was going to come another one, the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. This would be the last prophet, the prophet of all prophets that they had been awaiting. Jeremiah had lamented, Jeremiah 8, he says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken, I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? You can hear the aching for Messiah. The solution that was rooted in Genesis 3.15 promise and the covenant to Abraham and the unfolding of all the Old Testament. There would be balm in Gilead. There would be a great physician. There would be healing for the depraved heart. And so we see in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, the mention of the branch. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 2.21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Israel had become a wild vine, but Jesus comes on the scene in John 15.1, and he says, I am the true vine. Jesus would be the new Israel. He is the branch. He is the king. He is the Lord, our righteousness. And that is all promised in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, and if you want to turn there, that would be good. Jeremiah 31, 
I'll read a couple more scriptures before we get there. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 21, just a few of those texts. The people will be restored to their land. Jeremiah 29, 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. A text is often quoted as a promise for individual Christians, but it is a promise that the people of God would be restored in that context back into the land, but I believe it also propels us into the new covenant with significance for the church. It's setting up the new covenant promise that comes in Jeremiah 31. And beginning in verse 31, here is the new covenant. And notice in the chiasm I gave you, this comes right at the center of the entire context of the structure of the book of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In chapter 32, verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Hebrews 13, 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of his eternal covenant. And so you have in the New Testament, Jesus sitting there with his disciples and inaugurating the new covenant of his body and his blood. This is the new prophet, priest, and king of the new covenant. Jesus became the fulfillment of the failed prophets and the priests and the kings and restored the new Israel through this new covenant. And the new covenant is fulfilled in every way by Jesus when he said, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so then we wind up with the practical context. I have five things here very quickly. First of all, for the new covenant people of God, I think by now we ought to really get the idea that God is very serious about holiness. We must never think that there's never a time when God will chastise the new covenant church. 
Listen to 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is speaking to the church. To the church at Pergamum, you remember But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Listen, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we, in a New Testament sense, become at ease in Zion, so to speak, thinking gospel, gospel, gospel. And that God of the Old Testament no longer deals with uh, us in the way that he does in the New Testament. It is true. This new covenant makes us secure from beginning to end. It is a glorious covenant, but it does not void the fact that God is serious still about holiness. Holiness within the church. I don't know what kind of imagery comes up in your mind when you hear the Lord Jesus say, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then for the unsaved, second of all, God is also going to judge those outside of Israel. Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Third of all, for Babylon and all those who have held the church in bondage, the book of Revelation speaks metaphorically of Babylon as a city that stands in opposition against the new Jerusalem, the city of God, which is the new covenant people of God. Revelation 14, 8, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And again, Revelation 18.10, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the saints cry, if you read the text, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then fourth of all, to the preachers who want to quit because the people do not want to listen to the truth of God's word. Be reminded when Jeremiah said, the word was like a fire in my belly and I could not quit. And finally, to every weary Christian, by the grace of God, you are part of the remnant he has promised to save and preserve forever. We are in the midst of a decadent world. We're in the midst of a decadent culture. But one day, God will make it all right. Praise his name, his wonderful and worthy name. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, we thank you that in the midst of this book of so much gloom and doom, there is that nugget that comes time and time again of a greater promise, a new covenant day in which we now enjoy. Let us never take it for granted, but learn from the prophet and learn from your word and strive to be a holy people pressing into that kingdom, even through much tribulation, as we know we will enter the ultimate glorious state one day by your grace and your grace alone. Amen.